Our sermon text this morning as we continue through Paul's great letter to the Romans is Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. You can find that in your worship folder. Again, Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. This is God's word. Paul writes, What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you even as we hear these heavy words from your truth that you have revealed to us. And we ask now that as we consider the weight of them, that you would drive us to Christ, because it is only in him that we might be saved from the greatness of our sin. And so, Lord, we ask that you would show us Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. None of us, I believe, like to carry anything that is a heavy load. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you like lifting weights. I don't get that. I have never enjoyed it, but perhaps you do. But none of us really do like carrying a heavy load for long. And in fact, as humans, we always try to find ways to lighten heavy loads, to to lift things with minimal efforts. After all, we can only carry so much. I mean, even the strongest man and woman alive has a limit to what they can lift and carry. And eventually, there is a weight that will crush them. The same is said about the metaphorical burdens that we carry through life, those sorrows and cares and anxieties and doubts that that weigh us down. They suck away our joy. They they rob us of our peace. They remove any sense of rest. We try to carry them. We, we, We load them upon our back, but each step becomes harder than the next. But this morning, the Apostle Paul invites us to look on a weight that nobody can carry, but one which we all do. Because we have no choice. This is who we are as humans. 
This is who we are by nature. It is a burden that is that is fastened to the back of each person born into this world. It is one you cannot remove, you cannot lighten, and you cannot escape in your own effort. It is the burden of sin. In John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, Sin, particularly the the shame and the guilt of sin, is portrayed as a heavy burden that is tied, that is strapped and fastened to the back of Christian, the, the protagonist of that story. And he wants to escape that weight that he carries. He longs to have it released from his shoulders. You see, sin is a far greater burden than most of us realize. Paul's words here show us that burden, but not so that we might lose hope and fall down in despair, but so that we might see it and in seeing it through repentance and faith, be freed from it. We need it cut away. We need that burden to be lightened so that we can enjoy our life now and forever. And so as hard as these words are of the Apostle Paul here in Romans 3, we need to look at them and look at them hard and ponder them and consider them because in doing so, we will begin to understand how great our sin is and how much greater our Christ is who saves us from our sin. Now, when you think of a burden, one way to think about it is a power that controls you. That's how Paul is presenting sin here. It is a power. It enslaves. It rules over us as humans. And he gives us three reasons why sin is a greater power than you realize it actually is. First of all, sin is a greater power than you think it is because corruption, its corruption, is universal. So verse 9, he says, what then? He's asking a question again. Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under the load, the, the weight of sin. If you were here last week, we saw a similar question that was asked in earlier in Romans 3, back in verse 1, Paul asks a question that is the rhetorical question of a, a Jewish objector to what he had been teaching. The question was, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And he asked that question because he wanted to show that the Jews could not claim claim God's favor simply because they were born Jews. What is needed to be made right with God is what Paul calls the circumcision of the heart. That is to say, God's grace cutting away this burden of sin that each person carries so that they might be counted righteous before God. And one might object then, what advantage has the Jew then and what value is is carrying this outward sign of the covenant if what they really need is God's work in the heart? And Paul answers that question back in, in the beginning of Romans 3 by saying, much in every way. 
Because the Jews had the oracles, that is to say, the word of God. For many centuries, they had God's special revealed truth. The other nations only had the witness of creation concerning God. But now we come here to verse 9, and he answers a very similar question in a different way. And at first it may seem contradictory, but it is not. In fact, it is completely consistent with what he has been showing us all the way going back into Romans chapter 1. And that is that the world, all the world, every person lies under this cold, dark night of sin's corruption. Because all the world has rejected the knowledge of God which he has given them. And so for the Gentile world, that revelation was creation. As we saw back in Romans 1.20, that God in the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And of course, man in his sinfulness buries that knowledge of God. And refuses to worship him, but instead worships the creation. And for the Jew, they had the special revelation of God. The the law and the prophets, the scriptures of the Old Testament. The oracles of God, as he calls them back in verse 1 of chapter 3. And there laid out for them are all of God's covenant promises. As we discussed when we considered the sacrament of baptism. Promises of salvation for his people who would trust in him. Now, if you are coaching a football team and you just have an absolute star of a quarterback on your team and you never sub him in, you never start him, what advantage is the quarterback? You see, that's what the Gentiles did with the knowledge of God in creation. Revealed to them was the power of God, the reality of God. It is there. But in unrighteousness, they will not see God and acknowledge him for who he is. Now, what if, as that coach, you do start your quarterback, who is a star, but you don't put him in as a quarterback. You put him on the defensive line. That is what Israel did with the law of God. They had God's special promises, but they did not use his word correctly. And in both instances, having this advantage means nothing if it is not recognized or it is not used as it was intended And so all humanity in some way has rejected that God's truth. That is what sin is. It is a willful rejection of God and his truth. It is outright rebellion against the high king of heaven. It is cosmic treason against the eternal God who has made all things and is deserving of all glory. And because we have done that as people, as humans, we deserve his eternal justice. And so Paul rightly says here in verse 9, both the Jews and the Greeks are under sin. They are under the burden, the weight of their own sin. 
And notice all the words Paul uses here in this text to show us this universal nature of sin's corruption. He says, all are under sin. None is righteous. No one understands. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. The whole world is accountable to God. Yes, sin's corruption is universal. Sin is both inclusive and it is egalitarian. It leaves no race, no culture, no nation, no group or individual untouched. Both man and woman, young and old alike, carry this burden upon them, a burden of sin and its shame and its guilt. The moralist who tries to live his life perfectly and often fails, and he who lives his life immorally without thought of what is good, both have this burden upon him. Those who claim to be religious and those who live in secularism, both are laden with the burden of sin. Everyone is its slave. We are all in its chains. And there is not one square inch of the world that has avoided its stain. You see, sin is a great equalizer. Both the rich and the poor carry it in equal measure. You can find it in the greatest of cities, and you can find it in the remote remote part of the countryside. It has infected both the left and the right and everything in between. Sin is a greater power than we think because its corruption is universal. This entire world, all of creation, has been stained by its corruption. But secondly, Paul shows us that sin is a greater power than we think because it keeps you from enjoying what you were created to enjoy. And that is God through his creation. God made us to enjoy him through his creation. Because when we do enjoy him, you know what we do? We worship him which is what he ultimately desires, to be glorified, to be worshipped, to be praised in all things. You see, we praise the things that we enjoy. We celebrate the things that give us joy. C.S. Lewis explains it like this. He, He writes in his reflections on the Psalms, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, he writes. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praise least, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. 
It's because we praise what we enjoy. And we were created ultimately to enjoy God above all other things. Because when we do, then he is praised. But what Paul shows us here, particularly in verses 10 through 18, is that sin robs us of that ultimate joy because it keeps us from the very source of that lasting joy, who is God himself. I mean, notice here, first of all, depravity's joyless condition. Paul explains what this condition of sin's universal corruption is through a series of quotes from the Old Testament. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul is describing the very real world present situation that we live in now. And he's describing a situation where people are as far away from God as they possibly can be. They are far away from that source of true, ultimate, and everlasting joy. None is righteous. That is to say, no one is in accordance with what God desires. No one is characterized by God's truth and justice that his holy law requires. When God created humanity, humanity possessed what is called, in theology, original righteousness. And that's because Adam had not yet sinned in any way, in thought, word, or deed. But we know the story of the fall. Adam, representing all humanity, willfully chose to step out of accord with God's will. And through that, unrighteousness falls upon all humanity. Paul writes later in this book of Romans, in Romans 5, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So again, we see this this universal nature of sin in the entire world that is now given over to death because of that sin. Death is the result of our unrighteousness. Now, before sin, there was a promise of eternal life with God to enjoy him and all that he made for all eternity. But unrighteousness of humanity meant that now they could no longer abide in the presence of righteous God. That means they are cut off from that life. They are cut off from the joy that they were made for. That cutting off is called death. Verse 11 here comes from Psalm 14, where David writes these words. He says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And so we have this picture of God looking down from his throne upon all humanity to see if anyone knows him. Not just knowledge of him, but knows him as a person. And understands him through that knowledge that he has provided in creation and his word. 
But as we've already seen and as Paul has shown us, going back into Romans chapter 1, humanity and their unrighteousness has buried that knowledge that God has given, that he has revealed of himself. And instead, they worship themselves. They worship creation instead of worshiping God. And so the answer then is, who does God see anyone? No. No one understands. No one seeks God. They're not looking for him. They're not trying to understand who he is and what his will is for them. And so when they look upon creation, instead of seeing God's goodness, his provision, his power, his might, they see something else other than the glorious creator. And when looking in the scriptures, they don't see the revelation of God's truth, his promises of salvation. They just see burdensome text of ancient narratives and laws forbidding them from doing what they want to do. Or they see nice stories and narratives, but they are really no different than any other writing of any philosopher throughout all history. They don't see it as God's inspired truth. And so all have turned aside, says Paul. And this turning away and not seeking God implies that they are following a different path, a different road, other than the one for which they were created. You see, unrighteousness will lead you somewhere. It isn't just a road to nowhere. Notice that Paul doesn't say here that nobody seeks joy. Of course they seek joy. We all want to be joyful. We all want to have happiness in our lives. He also doesn't say that, well, nobody seeks morality. Well, there are people that do. Everybody, in fact, seeks some idea of what they think is moral and right. Everyone has some sort of ethic or way that they live their life in order to try to find some sort of meaning and purpose to their life. But what does Paul say? He says, nobody seeks God. They're not seeking what they need to be seeking. They're trying to find their joy. They're trying to find their sense of morality, what is right and what is wrong. And they're trying to find their purpose, what they were made for in everything but God. And for that, He says, all have become worthless, not meaning that they are unvaluable, but meaning that people are incapable of doing what they were created to do. They can't find the joy that they so long for. They're incapable of abiding in the presence of God because of their unrighteousness. They are not seeking God. That's depravity's joyless condition. It's a life that is separated from the source of all life. It is a life lived without any real joy and satisfaction because of the emptiness of the heart that is never filled because it was meant to be filled with God himself and his glory. And it is from that joyless condition of depravity that comes depravity's destructive consequences. 
We see these in verses 13 through 18. These consequences are portrayed yet through another vibrant string of Old Testament citations. First, Paul focuses upon the mouth, verses 13 and 14. Their throat, that is humanity, their throat is an open grave. They, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The grave, of course, speaks of death and decay. And venom, we know, is a, is a quick and, and potent bringer of suffering and death. And the reason the Paul uses this language and brings up the tongue here is to show us once again that the tongue is the revealer of the heart. It shows us what's inside. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew twelve twenty four. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if, if you speak poisoned words to your neighbor or to your spouse or to your son or daughter, brother, sister, father, mother, it's not coming from a heart that is seeking God. It comes from a heart that does not know joy. It comes from a heart of sin. A heart of death. A heart of the grave. But it's not just the mouth of people which documents the destructive consequences of universal sin and depravity of humanity. Because Paul continues in verses 15 and 17. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The violence of humanity that we see in this world is a consequence of the world not seeking God. When we turn away from God, the one in whose image all people are made, we will not dignify those who also bear that image. It becomes easy then to kill and to destroy God's creation when you refuse to reverence God as creator. And so Paul says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So sin is a greater power than we think it to be because it keeps us from reverencing God, and it keeps us then from enjoying Him and celebrating Him through His creation. And it brings great destruction in the lives of others. In sin, we praise ourselves over God and the consequences that we turn upon each other with hate-filled violence, both in our words and in our deeds. And it gets even worse. Because the final thing Paul shows us here regarding the greatness of sin's power over us is that sin is a greater power than you think it is because there is no way, absolutely no way, for you to escape it through your own efforts. You can do nothing. You are powerless to the power of sin. He writes in verses 19 and 20, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the law, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. Whenever we carry a heavy weight, a burden, we want to put it down eventually. We want to remove it. I mean, if you help somebody move to a new house and you get stuck with the task of lifting the heavy furniture, you don't want to lift and carry it very far. You try to find the quickest route to get it where it needs to go. Sometimes it's not that easy. But the point is, is that we don't like to carry those heavy loads. We want to remove them. We don't want to be restricted and weighed down. And that is true, especially true when it comes to the burden of sin, because all people feel the weight of it. It is there. It is restricting us. It is sucking away the joy as we already seen. That's why there's so much unhappiness and discouragement in this world. And so we want to get rid of that burden, to get rid of the thing that is causing this pain and this suffering and all this death. But the trouble is that sin's power over us is so great that we cannot release that burden. We cannot cut away its cords. So imagine then carrying a heavy load, standing there with a heavy box for all eternity. Your arms are burning. Your back is aching. You are losing your breath and you can never recover it for all eternity. That is the power of sin. It cannot be removed. But it's not that you don't try because we do. We do try to get rid of this burden of sin and we try to get rid of it in all sorts of ways. Some of us try to excuse it and say, well, it really isn't that great of a problem. Some of us say that the the burden of sin is actually good for us. That's that's who we really are. It makes us who we are. We, We just need to embrace it and be ourselves. And some of us try to be better, to live upright, to be more loving, more peaceful, more kind, more gentle. But it never really works because there's always some other person in this world that we do not love. We despise them. There's always somebody somewhere whom we will sin against. And there is always something or somebody that we will worship more than God. You see, God gave us his law then to stop every excuse that we would throw up before him, every excuse that would come from our mouth. Notice again what Paul says here. He says that whatever the law speaks, it does to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Now, by those under the law, of course, he does mean Israel in this context. Well, everyone has God's law written in nature. They had his special revelation. And yet as privileged as they were, as God's covenant people, they could not keep that law. They could not justify themselves through God's law. And if God's covenant people can't do it, what hope does anybody else have as well? They don't. 
Every mouth is stopped. There is no excuse. No argument can be made that anyone did anything to earn God's favor and cancel out sin's power over their life. You can't do it. And so he concludes, by the works of the law, nobody is justified in God's sight because it is through that law that you see your sin. You are shown to be what you truly are. It reveals the burden you carry. It tightens the chains of sin's power over you. Every time you try to use God's law to justify yourself, you are only adding more weight to that guilt and shame that you carry. And in the courtroom of heaven, the law of God stands there accusing you and making you, as Paul says here, accountable to God. It's a legal term. It means that one is liable for judgment because of their criminal actions. And your own sin, our own sin, is the evidence that condemns us in that courtroom. It speaks a word of accusation. It preaches us to us the truth that we have failed to keep that holy standard that God has established and no effort of our own can make it right We are cursed. All have gone astray. All have turned aside, as Paul said. No one does good, not even one in the billions and billions of people who have walked this earth. There is not one who has done righteously and been able to cancel the power of sin. That's how great it is. It is a greater burden than we think because its corruption is universal. It is a greater burden than we think because it keeps us from enjoying what we were created to enjoy. And it is a greater burden than we think because it is a power that we cannot remove, that cannot be broken by our own efforts. But as great as the power of sin is over us as people, It is not the greatest power over us. As great as the power of sin might be over you, it is not the greatest power over you because there is something far greater than the power of sin. It is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what cancels your sin. And that means that there is hope, there is salvation, there is joy. The power of sin is greater than you can bear, but the power of Christ Jesus is greater than your greatest sin. And when I began to mention John Bunyan's story, The Pilgrim's Progress, how he portrayed Christian and his sin as being this burden on his back. And as he started that journey, Christian, in his sorrow, said, what shall I do? He wanted to remove it, but he could not. And Bunyan, through Christian's travels, brings us to the moment where that burden is removed, where it falls away and it is freed. He says that Christian ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross and a little below it in the bottom, a sepulcher, a grave. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden 
loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued until it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. And then Christian will sing this this song of deliverance later when he says, Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off my back? Must here the strings that bound me to it crack? Blessed cross, Blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. You see, Jesus took upon him this burden that crushes you, this burden of sin, so that you could be free from its crushing power forever. First Peter 2.24, he himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. So what kind of burden of sin is holding you down this morning? What sins are crushing you under this weight of guilt and shame? And they are tormenting you. Jesus carried the burden of your sin to the cross to break that power forever. And all you need to do is trust him. Look to him in faith and repentance. Let him loose those chains of sin's power. The power of sin indeed is great, but the power of Christ Jesus our King is far greater. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how it does reveal to us this great weight of sin and the power it has over us, but how also you, through Christ, our Savior, cancel the power of sin forevermore. And so, Father, I ask now that you would continue to show us this truth in your gospel throughout this week, throughout our lives, and on into eternity so that we might faithfully continue to trust you and you alone and the grace that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.